for your word. And I thank you that it's trustworthy and true. And Lord, I pray that we'd have a breakthrough with this Google thing. Uh, whatever is causing this, I pray it would stop in the name and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and that it would be sorted and that we could see what is wrong and what's been happening and what they've been doing. Uh, so Lord, uh, just help us with that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The letter said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And then we go over to Matthew, the fifth chapter. Toward the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And then 1 Timothy chapter 2, first seven verses. Paul writes, 
First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is fitting in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. May God bless to us his reading from his holy word. And for those who are joining us online, this is just part of one of our, uh, just one part of our service here at Chelsea Community Church. If you'd like to be part of the whole thing by Zoom, send us an email or come and join us here in person on Sundays at 11 a.m. Well, I remember when Justin Welby was appointed Archbishop of Canterbury. And I remember how excited people were that somebody who'd been part of the HTB network somebody who was uh, an evangelical, somebody who was uh, perhaps charismatic, you know, now is the archbishop, and how things were going to change. And yet, nothing has. It's kind of continued to get worse. I remember, too, when Justin Bieber came out as a Christian, you know, and a lot of people said, wow, this is amazing. He's got some, some of the most followers in the world. You know, there's going to be thousands. This might initiate a revival. Hasn't happened. Or when Chris Pratt, you know, the, the Hollywood actor became a Christian, came out as a Christian. And uh, people were saying, wow, this is going to be great. It's going to revolutionize Hollywood. Things are going to change. People are going to change. And I remember since the 1970s in the United States, uh, every election, every election, people have said, you know, if only we get God's person in the White House. If only we get God's person. Now, Jimmy Carter, uh, who was president in the 1970s, uh, he was ridiculed because he came out as a born-again Christian. And actually, the man served the Lord uh, his days after after uh, not being reelected as president. But politics didn't really change. Then, of course, there was Ronald Reagan. Wow, you know, this, is, this guy's a Christian. It's going to change. Well, no, it didn't. And, uh, and then there was Bill Clinton. Oh, gosh, the government's going to hell in a handbasket now. Bill Clinton's been elected. And, uh, and actually, Congress actually balanced the budget back in his days. Huh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, and then, of course, it was the Bushes, uh, you know, and, and uh, George W. Bush. I, I don't know how other people, I kind of like the guy uh, quite a bit. I, he's the kind of guy that I'd like to sit down and maybe have a pizza with, you know. And they thought, well, the world's going to be different now. There's a, there's a Christian. And yet he led the country into the Iraq War. And then uh, there was Barack Obama. And then, and then there was the savior, Donald Trump, right? You know, because if Donald Trump gets in, 
You know, everything is going to get better. You know, and some things were better. Some things were better. And there was a lot of Christian freedom that happened under Donald Trump, but actually it didn't get better. Yet we keep looking for the next kind of savior. You know, we kind of save your light. Now the next person that's going to come. Now that's, there's actually a theory for this approach to history. It's called the great man theory of history. It was uh, formulated by Thomas Carlyle, uh, the Scotsman. Uh, and the idea was that history is nothing more than the biographies of great men. And it's how these great men acted in history, whether it's a king or a president uh, or some leader or a revolutionary leader. You know, it's how these great men acted in history that determined the course of history. The problem is that most historians now have completely discounted the great man theory of history. In fact, it's not true. And almost around the world, anybody who studies history has rejected this except for Christians. We tend to keep falling into this great man theory of history. We say, if only we get the right president, if only we get the right king, if only we get the right prime minister, if only we get the right leader of Amazon or leader of Apple or put whatever you want to in there, that somehow this person is going to act in such a way that will bring change to the world that will move everything toward the kingdom and away from the evil that's happening in the world. And we even apply this theory to our own lives. We say our own churches. We say, oh, if only our church had the right pastor, it would grow, it would flourish, it would thrive. Uh, if only I had enough money. If only I had that job raise, that job promotion. If only I had a bigger house. If only I had a nicer car. If only I had a different spouse. If only I had different kids. If only something would happen, then all of a sudden, will change the world and we can be an influence and make a real difference. And it's a great man theory of history that just is not true. It's not accurate. And historians now know that it's a whole lot more complicated than this great man theory of history. And I find it quite interesting in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not speaking to great men. Jesus is not speaking to the Roman emperor. He's not speaking to King Herod. He's not speaking to the, the Roman ruler in, in Jerusalem. He's speaking to ordinary people who gathered together to hear him give a sermon while he was standing on a mountainside. And he said, hey guys, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. If he'd been from the southern part of the United States, he'd say, y'all, y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. When the Jews were in exile, when they were taken away to Babylon, they exercised a greater influence in Babylon than any other nation that had been captured. 
they exercised an outside influence. You had, you had Daniel being number two, number three, number four in the kingdom. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You have right at the end of the exile, Nehemiah, who's the cupbearer to the king. Time after time, we see that the Jews flourished. They thrived in Babylon, and they had an influence in Babylon far greater than anybody realized. An influence so great that the kings of Babylon all would say, hey, this God, he is the real God of the universe. You see, we don't need a great man to change history. We need ordinary men and women, ordinary Christians, followers of Jesus, following Jesus and carrying out God's strategies for changing the world. Now, as we've been talking about here, we live in Babylon, not Israel. Culture in the West has shifted in the last two to three decades so that we no longer live in what we might call Israel. We are now living in Babylon. And we define Israel simply as a society that favors authentic Christian beliefs, values, and perspectives and expects others to favor those as well. That's a society you can call Israel. Babylon is a society that rejects authentic Christian beliefs, values, and perspectives, and expects others to submit to the Babylonian alternatives. We have to understand, living in Babylon, Babylon is attractive and seductive. So even Christians get sucked into it. Babylon is also demonically inspired and energized. These are demonic things that are coming up in Babylon. And it's also an empire spirit that seeks to subvert and control you and everyone else. And that's what we're living in right now as Christians. That's what our churches are in right now as Christians. And we can, you know, we can pretend that we're still in Israel, but that is a fundamental mistake because in, in Israel, you're favored. In Babylon, you're an enemy of the state. And so you have to act differently. And for us as Christians, living in Babylon is a dilemma. There's no solution for this. There's no great man that's going to fix it or a great woman that's going to fix it. We have to let it work itself out. History work itself out. And it will, because we know where we're going in history. And we know that our Lord Jesus Christ, he wins. And so oftentimes to solve a dilemma, resolve a dilemma, we need to ask questions and ask good questions, ask questions that the Bible brings up. And I think the question we might ask ourselves from today's passage in Jeremiah is how do I seek the welfare of the city where God has sent me? Or you can ask, how should I be salt and light in Babylon. Now to do this, first of all, we need to follow God's strategy for how to influence Babylon for his kingdom. God wants us to be influencers. God wants us to be change makers. But we need to follow his strategy. Christian history is replete with people who had an idea from God but then develop their own strategy and try to follow it. But we have to follow God's strategy. 
So what is his strategy? What is his strategy for how to influence Babylon? Well, it's based on Jeremiah, but we also see it in Paul and Jesus. Now understand, Jeremiah was writing the letter. He was in Israel, uh, a collapsed society at that time. And he's writing his letter to the exiles in Babylon. He says, guys, you're going to be here for 70 years. Daniel later refers to this letter in chapter 9 of Daniel, if you're, if you're reading Daniel. And he says, you're going to be there for 70 years, so this is God's strategy. This is what God wants you to do. So you can influence the Babylon where God has, has sent you to. The first thing he says, he says, build houses and live in them. Build houses and live in them. Now we need to take all of these things and apply them into our situation because not all of us can build a house right now. It's kind of difficult. So, you know, what does this mean? Build a house and live in it. It means make a home for yourself. Make a home for yourself. Build a life for yourself. Get a job. Get a career. Engage with the, the world around us. Remember that you're a sojourner but you are not transient. There's a lot of people, it's like, oh, you know, I, I hear this a lot of Christians right now. They're like, uh, if, they, if, if they could put it in our words, they'd say, oh, well, you know, we're not going to be in Babylon very long. We just need to get to the next presidential election in the United States, and then we'll get out of it. Or we won't be, we just need to get to the next parliamentary election here in the UK. Or put whatever you want to in there, it's not going to change the fact that we're in Babylon and we're going to be in Babylon for a while. So you got to, you got to remember, yes, we are sojourners in this world, but we are not transients. We are here and we need to put down roots, build a life, build a house, if you will, and live in it, exist, really live your life. Then he says the second thing, plant gardens and eat their produce. Well, we do have a little garden behind our house, but if we depended on that for our food, we would die very quickly because it's a very small plot and most of us don't. So what is this plant gardens and eat their produce? It means to earn a living for yourself and take care of yourself. Earn a living, take care of yourself. Don't expect others to take care of you, especially the government. Don't rely on other people. But earn a living, work hard, get in there, engage, put food on the table, the kinds of things that you have to do. Then he says a third thing here. He says, multiply there and do not increase. Now he said a lot before that, you know, have wives, get children, uh, get your children to have kids and your children's kids to have kids and on and on and on, you know, to multiply and do not decrease. It's a key thing. Do not decrease. Multiply, do not decrease. And I think for us, we could say this means to multiply both naturally and supernaturally. Yeah, it is important when we can to get married, have children. A lot of times people say, well, I don't want to have kids. It's such a terrible world. Well, we, live, we have a good God. So we need to have kids if you can have kids. Not everybody can. Not everybody's going to get married. And that's not a judgment against those who are not. Understand. 
Because we're part of a larger body of Christ, right? So we have to understand that, but we shouldn't avoid that if at all possible. Uh, because what happened in Babylon, the Jews, they grew and they flourished. Uh, they expanded in their society. And because of that, they influenced the society. So multiply there, don't, in, don't decrease. But I think for us as, as the church, we also need to be sharing our faith and helping lead people to Jesus. And those day-to-day -day encounters and interactions. I was reading a review of uh, a book about 50 atheists that came to faith in Christ and were willing to share their story. And almost every single one of them came to faith in Christ because they knew a Christian who was willing to build a relationship, not to save them, you know, not, not as a target, but just to build a friendship. And those kinds of things, they happen in the workplace. They happen in the schools. You build a friendship, get to know them. And when you have your opportunity, you can share your faith in Jesus Christ. It also means we need to grow healthy churches. We want to have more and more and more churches. I had a, a minister come to me about uh, oh, seven or eight years ago. Uh, they were going to start a prayer room over in the city of London where City Temple is at. And, uh, and he knew that we had a prayer room. And he was afraid that, you know, it would be considered competition. So he took me out to lunch, you know. When you have a friend, it, it was worth the lunch. And uh, he took me out to lunch. He said, I, you know, we're going to do this. Uh, and I just didn't want you to think that we're trying to be in competition with you. And I said, David, that was his name. I said, David, when 90% of the people of London are saved, we can talk about being in competition. Until 90% of the people are actively following Jesus, born again, we're not in competition. We need as many churches as we can have. We need to see them grow. We need to see them flourish because we need to increase, not decrease. And so we've got to nurture our relationships. Nurture those relationships and build them. And then the heart of God's strategy to influence Babylon here Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. This is the heart of it. We need to seek the welfare. Now, the word welfare is the Hebrew word shalom. Uh, often it's translated as peace, but it means well-being. Uh, it needs, means health. It means peace. So we're to seek the shalom, God's shalom, on the city. We have to remember that God has sent us, God has placed you where you are. You're not here by accident. You're not in London by accident. God has sent you here, God has placed you here. And you have to understand it is a place of exile, which means that a lot of people aren't gonna like you. And most people are not gonna do what you do and live like you live. And that's especially true now. And we need to expect that, but all the while, we need to be seeking the welfare of the city. So how do we do that? Well, first, we need to be good. Be good. Know who you are in Jesus Christ. Make sure that your attitudes and your behaviors are reflecting the character of Jesus Christ. 
If you need to know more about that, look up the, the fruit of the Spirit that's in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fruitfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, if you grow in those things, people will see Jesus in you. So you got to be good because the world has had enough of Christians who are not reflecting Jesus in their attitudes and their lives. We have too many ministers not doing it, too many leaders not doing it, and too many people in the pew. And so people are saying, well, why should I follow this Jesus? Because it doesn't make any difference for you. And so we got to be good. But then we also have to do good. We need to do good. You know, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. That means you might not think much of yourself. You might not think much of where God's placed you, but God has good. He wants you to do where you are, no matter your circumstance. You might be an asylum seeker. You might be the king. Doesn't matter. God has good for you to do, and you need to do that good. Seek it out, because he's prepared it. Work for the good of other people around you. Work for the good of the city. Get involved in civic life. Do whatever you can to promote God's good in the city around you. Because the reality is that God's good is good for everybody, even if they reject God. God's good is good for everybody. So we need to do good. And then he tells us to pray to the Lord on behalf of the city. We need to be praying, interceding, asking God to bless the city, asking God to stop evil, asking God to promote good in the city. We need to pray that God's kingdom would come in the lives of the people around us, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our government, and that God's will would be done. We also need to pray against any kind of demonic activity in our city, that it would be protected from demonic deception and demonic attack in all ways. And Paul adds to this, you know, Paul adds and says, hey, we also need to pray to the Lord for all people, especially kings and those who have any kind of authority. I remember people said, I mentioned Bill Clinton earlier, and I, met, I remember something very strong that I heard a Christian leader say at the end of Bill Clinton's presidency. He said, if the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States had prayed for Bill Clinton as much as they had criticized Bill Clinton, he might have been a different president. Are we known for our prayer? Are we known for our criticism? Are we known for speaking good? Are we known for speaking evil? It's a key issue for us, especially today. Because as a Christian, you cannot hide behind a pseudonym on Facebook. The Lord knows. You can't hide behind a fake name on Twitter. The Lord knows. The Lord knows. And so we pray in all kinds of ways, supplications, asking God's favor on people. A general prayer, that means praying together, especially for people. Um, intercessions, which means we stand in the gap at their place of weakness and say, God, please don't judge them, but please turn them and fill in this gap so that they become the person that you want them to be. And give God thanks for people. Thanks for the people around you. And then 
Jeremiah says in his letter, he says, now you've got to beware too, any prophetic word or teaching that would tell you something different from this. We need to beware of sinful rebellion and we need to beware of pride and arrogance because both of those things are present in the body of Christ in the West today. And we need to be very, very careful because God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. And I don't know about you, but I like to stay on God's good side. Because I've learned if I'm in opposition to God, guess who always wins? God. And so we need to be careful of any prophetic voice that comes. So that's God's strategy for us. So how can we walk into that strategy? How do we fulfill that strategy? Well, we must trust God fully if we're going to follow this strategy. You have to fully trust God and that his strategy is for your influence in Babylon and it's the right strategy because sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes it doesn't seem the right way to go based on what people around us are doing. We have to trust in God's goodness and faithfulness on our lives. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's what the Lord said through Jeremiah. We have to trust that God will hear our prayers when we are making these prayers. As God said through Jeremiah, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. And the implication of God hearing is that God's going to respond. And then we have to trust that God's going to reveal himself to us, reveal his ways, especially as we wholeheartedly seek him. As the Lord said to Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God wants us to know him. God wants us to find him. God wants us to know his will. We've got to trust that and seek him for it. We need to trust that God will restore us and gather us to himself. Either here, there, or as a friend of mine used to say, in the air. No matter what, that God's going to restore us. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortune. I'll restore your well-being. I will restore the favor on your life. So you have to trust God because not always do our circumstances seem to confirm what God is saying here. But even when our circumstances differ, we need to trust God. I trust God more than what I see. I trust God more than what I think. I trust God more than what anybody else says. And that's the attitude we need to have. And the third thing here, we must have faith that God's strategy is the one that's going to lead to the best outcomes for us. God's strategy will lead to the best outcomes. We must have faith that, what Jeremiah said, in it's the city's welfare, you will find your welfare. That's a, that's a statement of faith. Because a lot of times we'd rather burn down the city than seek its welfare. So you have to have faith that in, if, if things go well for London, things go well for me in London. That's God's promise. We have to have faith that we'll experience fruitfulness. This is what Paul says, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly 
and dignified in every way. That's a place of fruitfulness for us as Christians. To have tranquility, to have peace, freedom from strife, living according to God's ways. And God will show us honor, respect, and holiness. And we have to trust that's a good thing. That's a good thing. We must have faith that the life we will live is good and pleasing in God's sight. That doing these things, following this way, following this strategy, really does please God. Not some other strategy that we might devise where we think, hey, maybe this will have better results. We must have faith that living as salt and light in the world will lead to having the best possible influence in the world. That means we don't hide ourselves as Christians under a bushel. We don't shrink back, but we engage fully in what God is doing in the world around us. We have to have faith that God, uh, that what God says will lead to the best environment for seeing people saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That when these things happen, and when we have our influence, as we exercise this influence, that this will lead to people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And we have to have faith that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Frankly, there's a lot of Christians right now in the West who don't have faith in this. Who say, well, you know, all, all, all roads lead to the top of the mountain. You know, it doesn't matter if you're Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim. You know, what matters is if you're, if you're serving faithfully. You know, all these people, they have peace. And, and it seems like peaceful religion and a happy religion. So, uh, so, you know, we just have to say that these all can get there. But no, if you want to have influence, you have to have faith that there is one God and one mediator between God and people and that's Jesus Christ, who was fully human, fully God, who died on the cross and rose bodily from the dead so that we might have forgiveness of sins, newness of life, union with God, and eternal life. And there's only one person to whom that comes. Now, in contrast to the great man theory, there's another theory. It's called the butterfly effect. You may have heard of it. No, you may not have. It was uh, first uh, uh, put forward about 50 years ago, a long time. And, and uh, the theory is that a small action can significantly impact a complex system. A small action can have an outsized impact on a complex system. And the butterfly effect was known because the, 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 the one who formulated it asked the question, can the flapping of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? And we initially say, well, no, that's impossible. But is it? Is it? There's actually a mathematical theory behind the butterfly effect that I'm not going to go into because I don't fully understand it, let alone I, there's no way I can explain it. But there is a mathematical theory there. Uh, and this theory suggests that little things, like actions, uh, like the little encounters that we have, 
that we might not notice them, we might not be able to measure them, but these little things may have, may, may have major yet entirely unpredictable effects on the world. If you've ever seen the film Sliding Doors, uh, that was a film about the butterfly effect. What happens when a woman misses a tube, an underground train, and when she catches it, and the different outcomes of her life over that one little thing. And there's been lots of other things around that. Now the thing is that the people who formulated the butterfly effect, and it is true, little actions, little encounters, little words that we say can have an outsized impact on the complex systems in which we live. And we live in a multitude of complex systems. But when you add God's sovereignty into the equation, the effects become greater than our imagination and completely unanticipatable. How about that for a word? But it's greater than we can think. No human theory can account for how God is at work at all times in our world. And God's sovereignty then, combined with our obedience, following God's strategy, will lead to profound and positive change. The little things we do to seek the welfare of the city, it might be a small encounter that you have. It might be a small word of encouragement to your bus driver or to the person sitting next to you on the bus or in the tube. A little encounter that you have could make a profound and positive change. The little things that we do to seek the welfare of the city will lead to big changes that we will never anticipate, but God sees and God knows and God is working in. Each one of us affects the course of human history in ways that we cannot possibly understand. You may not think much of yourself, but your life makes a difference more than you can possibly know. And when we get together with other people and we start acting together, it multiplies the impact that we have in doing those little things. And when we get together, multiplying that impact and you mix in the sovereignty of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, the glory of Jesus Christ, and you see even Babylon shifting with the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's the difference that you make. That's the difference that we make. But you have to have faith. Jesus had the faith. We don't think about it much now, but you know when Jesus died on the cross, that was an utterly insignificant event in human history from a human standpoint. Some crackpot teacher in a backwater part of the Roman Empire got on the bad side, got up the nose of the religious leaders, so they encouraged the Romans to kill him. Who cares? We do hundreds of crucifixions, we just do it. No big deal. And yet we know that little thing that happened that day was the most significant thing in history. And that was confirmed when three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the tomb. 
And from that day, that weekend, the world has never been the same. When we follow Jesus Christ together, as people saved by grace through faith, as salt and light in the world, God uses us to change the world, even in Babylon. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Lord, help us to believe. Give us the faith and the confidence that we need. Inspire it in us so that we will go forward from this place being good and doing good, seeking the welfare of this city as part of your multifaceted strategy for changing Babylon. Let your Holy Spirit fill us up. And let the joy of Jesus be in our hearts and our minds. For we love you and we worship you and we thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.